HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Feast Your Ears. Today on Feast Your Ears, coming to us by phone all the way from Arkansas, probably our most long-distance guest to date, is Craig Colarusso. Craig tells people that he's just a thug from Danbury, Connecticut when he meets them, but in fact, he's much more than that. Craig's been playing in bands and performing live music since his early teens. He's toured the U.S. many, many times and is the creator of some incredible art installations like Cube Music and Sunboxes. He's the best artist you've likely never heard of, but I hope you'll check out his stuff online or when he comes to a town near you. Thanks so much, Craig, for taking the time out of your Wednesday afternoon to talk with me. Uh, hey, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to, uh, great to have you on the show. Someday maybe we'll get you here in the studio, but I know you don't make it back here to Brooklyn very often. Not as much as I'd like, but you know how it is. So can you introduce yourself? And, uh, you know, I obviously, we've been friends for a long time, and I know what you do, but my listeners don't. So can you introduce yourself and talk about what you do? And, uh, you know, if someone, if you meet somebody in an airport and they say, hey, what do you do? What do you tell them? Uh, you know, I usually don't talk to people in airports, but uh, I guess if I was forced to, I would say I am a, I'm an artist and see where that goes. <laughs> um, I describe myself sometimes as a recovering musician. Uh, I feel like I was in a lot of bands when I was younger, and I really loved it, uh, but I just didn't see a future for myself in music, um, but the world just makes more sense when I have a guitar in my hands, so I started to make art that makes sound. Nice, and you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to enjoy your art now for, you know, 
I don't know, how long have we known each other? 10, 15, 20 years, something like that? Um, something like that. Uh, you talk about uh, playing in bands. Uh, how did you get started with that, and when did you first tour? Um, let's see. I, you know, I, I was 14 in 1984, so that Van Halen record changed my life like it did a lot of other people's. Um, I just have always loved loud guitar. Uh, just, I just loved it. I mean, I can't, I can't say, can't say it any more concise than that. Um, that probably led me to playing an instrument, and obviously, when you're playing an instrument, it sounds great when you're in your room by yourself. But you can imagine it must sound really awesome if you do it with other people. So I tried to get in a band. Uh, I played with a bunch of people, but my, I guess my first big, uh, my first big break was in 1989. My good friend Todd Rancic called me up and said that his band Far Cry was going on tour, but their guitar player did, was afraid to leave because he was afraid his girlfriend would cheat on him. <laughs> so I said, all right, dude, I will get there. So I made my way down to Bethesda, Maryland, rehearsed with the band for like two weeks, and then we went on the road. Nice. And I thought, wow, you know, right place, right time. And I, you know, being, I was excited to do it. And then it was just even more awesome than I could have imagined while I was doing it. I thought, I want to do this for the rest of my life. How can I do that? And there you have it. That was the beginning. And so it's basically been since then in one form or another that you've been touring, right? I mean, you've given up being in a band with other musicians and touring that way. And now you tour with your art. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like I've created um, a little niche for myself where it's somewhere between you know, art and music, uh, I get to sort of live out my rock and roll fantasies by traveling, but it's really more of like a mindset. I mean, I think when you're in a band, you just think, all right, how can I do this? Squeeze it in a van and go. And I've just taken that concept and applied it to art. And it's, I think it's worked out pretty well for me. Um, I do love the road. I must admit, uh, you know, my wife is a fly gig. Um, I've convinced her to take a few road trips with me, but she likes to fly and I like to drive. So, we have that to look forward to for the rest of our lives. And uh, you guys have a daughter now, Wilhelmina, right? Yes, Wilhelmina Adele Calaruso. She uh, loves music, so she might very well be in the family business, but who knows? That's great. Do you think that she's going to fly to gigs or drive? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we've taken her on a few road trips. She seems to dig it. Um, you know, the thing about traveling in a car... I. I understand that I probably should fly some of the times that I actually drive, but I don't ever want to lose that, like, you know, what does it take to get from here to there and all the possibilities in between. I feel like you miss some of that when you fly in an airplane. Um, plus, yeah, I just find flying uncivilized. I really do. I mean, driving around is a really, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I find, it, I find it great. I mean, I, you know, I've toured the country a couple of times. I'm sure not nearly as many as you have over the years. And the things that you find when you're driving from place to place, even if you're on tour playing music or presenting art, you know, it's the, it's the in-between I've always really loved. You see a sign on the side of the road and you say, you know, what is that? Let's stop. And sort of making time for that, I've, I found that, the sort of musician schedule, and I, I wonder if this is true with your with your art schedule. You know, it allows for that. It allows for you to see a sign and say, you know, I'm going to take a half an hour, and I'm going to you know turn down this road and I'm going to check this thing out, and maybe it'll be cool and maybe it won't, but I'll probably drive down a road I never would have seen before. Well, I mean, case in point, when you and I were on tour with Carpentry, and we were playing, I think it was our last gig of the, the tour, and we went to some restaurant. I don't even remember what it was. 
And I remember you turned to me right before we went on. You're like, I needed that. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And you're like, I just needed like an actual experience because we've been just moving so fast from getting from gig to gig. And I mean, do you remember that, or is that I do? No, it? no. I mean, I I don't I don't remember the restaurant. Uh, I guess it wasn't you know, wasn't wasn't a particularly <laughs> memorable road meal. Uh, I do have yeah. a, I do have a couple of those. I certainly uh, I mean, from that particular tour, the thing I re- actually the, I mean the story that I tell most often of that tour was when uh, when we got pulled over in uh, I forget I think it was Ohio right right around midnight. Yeah, and you were you were you were driving and we were listening to Highway to Hell. And uh, I remember the cop coming up and saying, son, you've been drinking? And we hadn't. I mean, we'd just been driving for like 11 hours or something. And he said, you were weaving all over the road. And you turned to him and you said, sir, I was listening to ACDC. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, to go back to the, the touring and, and, uh, and checking things out, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, we eat every day. Right. And and being on tour, that can kind of be a it can kind of be a crapshoot. Right. I mean, you don't know where you're going to end up eating. Um, you know, I, I emailed you a bunch of questions before the before the show. And one of the questions I always send to my guests is, you know, what's your what's your pet peeve related to food? And your answer was that the most convenient food is the worst. And that's, you know, on the road. A lot of the times that's what you're getting. Right. You're hungry. You're driving, it's been five, six, seven, eight hours, and you see something, you're like, man, I just got to eat something. So what do you do yeah. in that situation? What do you what do you usually eat? Well, um, I try and avoid fast food at all costs now. Um, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting old, uh, so I need to take better care of myself. So I actually, um, I make a big thing of pasta before I go, and I eat that on, the, on my way, and I just stock the van with fresh fruit and vegetables. Um, you know, I just do what I can. I mean, I, I remember I was doing a gig with Bob Dwelly, and we'd driven like two days straight, and we just had to get back. And I remember pulling over. I was on the Mass Pike right when you get to right when you leave Northampton, and I was like, "Man, I have just I've drank too much coffee. But if I don't drink this soda, I will die." And I thought, "Man, I got to make some lifestyle changes because I, I don't want to do this anymore." And so I've just tried to like, you know. Try and be as healthy as you can, but it's tough. Do you have any favorite places that you have eaten on the road that you've either gone back to or you find particularly memorable? Well, when I was younger, I always just dreamed about Waffle House. And, um, you know, living in the north, there aren't any, so it's very exotic. And I, th- um, and I think Waffle House became a sort of mythic thing to... to people who either went on tour in the late 80s, early 90s, sort of before the internet. Um, I remember reading an article about Waffle House and Maximum Rock and Roll, uh, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the early 90s, I think. And, you know, I think it, it took on this kind of, like, mythical thing because people would come back from tour, you know, the punk, you know, my friends' bands would come back. They'd be like, man, we went to Waffle House, like, every day when we were down south. <laughs> well, I always thought, like, wow, if I lived in a town that had a Waffle House, I would just set up shop, man, and I would just eat you know, scattered, covered, and smothered all day long. And now that I live here in Arkansas and there's plenty of Waffle Houses, I don't go. It's just different. I mean, it's, the food is never good. But it was just, I guess for me, it just represented that I was 
uh, out of my my area, and I was doing something that I wanted to do, and so that was always comforting, no matter how bad the food was. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean there was an article in uh, Bon Appetit uh, earlier this year where Andrew Knowlton, who's one of the editors, um, Waffle House had always played a big role for him, and he actually worked at a Waffle House for twenty four hours straight and wrote about it. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. It's a, it's a good. I mean, it, it's a, it's a good article. I mean, he talks about the regulars coming in, and he talks about learning from the guys on the line and stuff. It's kind of you know, it was a, it was a nice ode to Waffle House for sure. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, I I have a, a thing about restaurants too because I worked in a lot of restaurants when I was younger. Um, you know, being being a restaurant guy is just great. Because my, I worked for a guy that was a really cool, and he just let me take off when I needed to go on the road. He's like, just make sure you come back sometime. And I was, I was like, yeah, man, I need a job when I come back, so don't worry. But you know, it was just always there's just always something cool about working in restaurants. So I don't know if it was like the flow of it or just it always attracted all the misfits. You know, basically everybody who was there, it seemed like they couldn't have regular jobs, so we were all sort of stuck together. What do you cook at home? Uh, you sent me a picture earlier today of harvesting some great-looking squash out of your garden. Oh, yeah, butternut squash. Um, I, uh, I I cook a lot of pasta, um, and I also I eat a lot of squash. Uh, <laughs> I think it tastes good. <laughs> What's your favorite way to cook it? Uh, I actually like butternut squash soup with um, with a lot of curry in it. Nice. Perhaps, uh, perhaps you can send a recipe, and we'll put it up on the up on the site. <laughs> okay. I've been eating a lot of squash. We have, you know, this obviously is a, you know, it's it is the season for squash, and at the Brooklyn Kitchen, we have a lot of varieties now. I think we have seven different varieties of squash in at any given time, and I've been eating it a wow. lot. I've been steaming it a lot. Oh, um, okay. Because I find it to be actually a really fast way to cook it, um, and it's a good sure. way to get sort of dinner on the table quick for the kids. Right chop it up and steam it well you know uh we always sort of talk about um you know we always seem to you know i always seem to start about talking about music and then it sort of goes into a million different directions and you know one of the things i was thinking about earlier is i've always been able to find the analogy with music and other things and i think one of the biggest ones is food um you know basically i'm going to be around for the next 50 years or so with any luck and you know i'm gonna have to eat dinner every one of those nights so I'm have to, either going to have to make it, or I'm going to buy it, or I'm going to have to convince someone to make it for me. Um, I think there's something about that with music. I mean, I know we sort of have this thing where we make recordings, and then we can digitally send them anywhere. But when it comes to, like, live performance, I mean, there's just something kind of cool about you play guitar, you can play guitar every day for the rest of your life in the same way that you have to eat. Do you ever think about that? Yeah, and I mean, even even not necessarily the playing of, I find that, you know, for me, myself, unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever it is, I spend, you know, the, the hours that I perhaps used to spend playing music, I now spend with my kids, which is great. But, you know, there's only 24 hours in the day, and I have to sleep some of them, or else I wouldn't have energy to do anything. And, uh, but I definitely, we listen to music all the time. And so I think that there's, there's that. And, and, you know, I mean, obviously... I think that for people for whom music is really important, um, you're going to listen to that every day in the same way you're going to eat food every day. And I've, I've always had a, a sort of hard time, I feel like, communicating with people who don't listen to music regularly. Because mm-hmm. it just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> um, yeah, do you meet a lot of people that don't like music? or 
I mean, I, I don't know that I, it's not something that comes up in conversation a lot, but I definitely, you know, I'll talk about, oh, I listened to this or I saw this and I, you know, I've had people say, oh yeah, no, I don't really listen to anything. I feel like I don't end up, I don't end up around those people a lot, but once in a while. <laughs> Excellent. Um, can you give a, a brief uh, history of your performing and then the art pieces that you that sort of you sort of have? I mean, one of the things that that I find interesting about the work that you do is, you know, the bands that you've been in, China Pig and, and other ones. You know, those things are sort of like closed segments of your life, right? You had them, you made records. The records are still out there. The the thing has sort of ended, but you know, certainly in the last. 10 years or so with the art pieces that you've been making, they kind of tend to, because they're installation based, they continue to live on. I mean, you know, the first cube music installation, and then if you have another, you know, you have another one coming up. And so that's been now like 10 years of installing that piece. And it's been relatively, you know, the same, uh, the same objects that get installed in different locations. Yes, I, I guess I would agree with all that, but I would also say um, part of it is that these things are changing a lot. And, um, uh, for instance, you know, like with China Pig, it was just three guys. And we're like, let's make some records. Let's let's go on the road. That, it was a very specific kind of outline of what it what it could be. And I think one of the things that I love about key music and Sunboxes is that I have no idea where it's going to end up because it could go in so many different directions. Um, my, I would say that you know, key music has probably done about twenty different shows all over the country and you know the, the the cubes the sound the lights that's all the same but it's different in every room and then all that stuff really informs the piece so it's it's you know it's kind of evolving and then the whole idea of like you know now we're working on making an app for cube music that's a whole other thing that i never even thought of when it started you know what i mean sure there weren't there were no apps right nobody was <laughs> we, we all <laughs> right, we all had yeah. we all had flip phones when cube music was first created yeah, I didn't even have a phone. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the same thing with Sunboxes. Uh, I'm just starting to get a grasp of, of where this could go. And what's coming up for me in two weeks is I'm actually going to do all four pieces as well as the short film install in an abandoned warehouse in Charleston, South Carolina. And, you know, I've always envisioned these things being uh, their own entities, but I also can see them working really well together. And this is the first time I've ever been able to do that. <laughs> That's really, that's neat. I, I really, I wish that I could make it down there. I doubt that I'll be able to. Um, I've seen three, of, three of the pieces, um, Cube Music, uh, MB89, and Sunboxes I've seen. And then you're, you're premiering a new piece, right? Uh, yeah, I've, it's not actually, I've shown it uh, two times before, but it's, yeah, it's a piece called Moon Phases. And basically it plays music based on the fullness of the moon, starting in silence with a new moon, uh, and, you know, basically escalating to the fullness musically with the fullness of the moon well i really i i hope we get to bring that to new york uh sometime we're gonna take a, a short break here and uh when we come back i'm actually gonna uh we'll play a piece that you and i recorded uh in 2005 take a sip from your just
Michter's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's Master Distiller says it's just right. Michter's Cost Be Damn Taste Is Everything Attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food & Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and with me today is artist and musician Craig Calaruso. Before the break, Craig, we were uh, talking about uh, your different pieces, and you have a show coming up in Charleston. And I wanted to sort of figure out a way, because we're on radio and your pieces are very visual, um, to just sort of talk through and describe them um, and sort of what they do. Um, Cube Music is the first, is that correct, of your sort of larger scale installation pieces? Uh, actually, MB89 was first, but uh, it wasn't really perfected until years later. But, yeah. And can you just can you describe those pieces for the listeners? Sure. MB89 or, or I can, is, if you'd prefer um, to hear an outside <laughs> perspective. <laughs> uh, sure. MB89 is three uh, 10-foot cylinders that have muslin fabric draped down the side. Uh, and there's these blue lights that glow. And then I'm inside one of the cylinders playing bass clarinet for... Usually I try and do like four hours, but sometimes I've done it longer and sometimes less. And it's meant to kind of be treated as an installation. You can kind of come and go as you please. There's no beginning. There's no ending. The whole premise was what would it be like to play music, to play a piece of music for the rest of my life. And, jeez, um, I think I started... The first time I did that was in 1998. Um I, the first install was at on Mike Burke's radio show in Northampton, Massachusetts, in 1998. Um, so yeah, I've been ever since then. I've been doing it in different configurations. Um, the whole thing just kind of glows and drones. I find it very soothing. Nice. Do you, do you ever invite other musicians to be a part of that, or is that piece just you solo? Um, it's just me solo, but there have been times where I've had other people come and play, and I'm not sure that that always works. Um, so I don't really do it that much anymore, but I'm always open. And then Cube Music, um, which is a piece that, uh, you know, I, I helped you set up many times, um, is made out of metal. So we're getting into sort of a different, um, different aesthetic, uh, different aesthetic space, different material space than MB89. Yeah, I mean, cube music is six four-foot by four-foot aluminum cubes that have geometric shapes cut out of them. And then there's uh, a light source, three light sources inside each one of the cubes that all glow and sort of decay over time. And so the whole piece basically scatters shadows across the room. So for me, I kind of feel like, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, the music, the cubes, and the light, that's cube music. But the piece itself becomes the environment that it's in. And it's really amazing how different it is in every room. Um, 
that that to me was like kind of a game changer because it it really started to get me it started to get me in that sort of thought process of like where these things go and sort of wrap my head around something that could kind of evolve over time. I think that's the the common thread of all this is there's an evolution and you just need time to let these things unfold. Right. I mean, you talk about the new piece being related to the moon phase. And if I remember correctly, the, um, the, the guitar chords that are playing in the six cubes of cube music have about a 28 day loop, right? Yes, they do. Um, wow. Look at you. Good memory. (laughs) Um, yeah. And that was actually kind of by accident. I mean, I just, I, I, the story with cube music is I saw the sheets of metal and I could hear the music in my head and I was like, man, these, this metal is so beautiful. I got to do something with this. And, um, you know, so I just kind of went about my business doing it. And then I did the math and I realized that to play cube music from start to finish, um, it would take 28 days before it would cycle around. And I started to be like, wow, that is amazing. I made something that's 28 days long. Like that's crazy. Um, yeah, time. Love it. <laughs> and then uh sunboxes um you know if if i may describe it having having seen it i mean i i find it to be a a really really compelling piece um and i think it it expands on what you are talking about with cube music in terms of it um its relation to the environment because cute uh sunboxes requires being outdoors um right it requires the sun and Sunboxes is a collection of, and we'll post some pictures up on the site, is a, is a collection of solar-powered speakers that each one has a chord in it, right? Or a single track? Yeah, yeah each box has its own note, and collectively it makes a B-flat 6 chord. Uh, and the boxes are, are installed somewhere where there is sun, uh, and that is what causes the sound to come out of the speakers. And as a, as a viewer, um, you know, having, having visited and seen this installed, it's really it's incredible because you get to move through the sound, and you get to, as the viewer um, or as the consumer, I guess, of the art, you get to change your own physical relationship to the cord, to the speakers, um, even your own shadow can affect that if you pass in front of the sun and block the sun from hitting the solar panels. Yeah, well, and you know, the other thing too that I love about sunboxes is that my relationship to the planet has changed. I mean, I really see myself, uh, you know, much more of, I, I see myself aligned more with like a farmer than like an architect, you know, like my my daily uh sort of ritual revolves around what's happening with the sun uh i've done a number of gigs where it's just been too cloudy or it's been raining and i just basically have to sit in the van and wait for it to pass mm. uh, and it's you know kind of like what we were talking about earlier like with food it's an everyday thing like you know one one sunbox gig can be awesome and then the next day it could be like torrential downpour especially in new england um i mean when we went and filmed on martha's vineyard I basically sat in my hotel room for six days. It was just a complete downpour, you know, and I was on the phone with Kevin Belli, the filmmaker, you know, every day. And I was like, yeah, dude, I don't know, man. Uh, let's talk tomorrow. It looks terrible. I don't think you're going to be here for a few days. <laughs> and so I, what I've learned from this is you just, be, you just have to be patient. And I like that. I like the fact that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm improvising with Mother Nature, but at the same time I'm sort of at her mercy. Right. Uh, you know, we're all so arrogant with our guitars, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you look at, you know, if you look at uh, 
Um, you were talking about Van Halen earlier. I mean, if we want to talk about arrogance, right? <laughs> um, well, yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's the other thing, too, is that um, what I'm gathering from these pieces, and I think Mooncase just kind of follows up with this, is that, you know, basically I have an idea, and I'm setting up a system to sort of allow it to integrate with what's already happening here on the planet and just basically seeing where that system goes. To me, that's awesome. You know, I meet so many people that they just want to, like, they want to control things. They want to strangle them. And I just, you know, uh, Joel Westerdale's great saying was, you know, when you dissect a frog, you can learn a lot about it, but the frog is dead. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved that. Um, I don't know, man. I, I want to be humbled by things. I want to be humbled by art. I don't want to squeeze the life out of it. So... Is there anywhere that you really want to do sunboxes in the future that you're working on, like any specific location? Yes. I have a life goal of getting sunboxes out to the Great Pyramids. Wow. I feel like if the Grateful Dead can do it, why can't I? Well, and Prince played there, too. Ah. Right? Awesome. I love Prince. Maybe. Uh, I would imagine it's an easier gig for me because I don't need any power. I just need them to basically let me do it and not shoot me. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it, you know, it sounds like that's a, that's an achievable goal. I think that could you know, <laughs> that could work. Um, what about doing sunboxes on the moon? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, it would probably be exciting on one part of the moon, and probably <laughs> not very exciting on the other. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm open to it. I, that's the other thing too is that these pieces. Um, you know, you know, not to totally attack the music industry, but, you know, let's face it, if you're not cute and you can't say what you want to say in three minutes, you're kind of, you got nowhere to go. And I sort of feel like uh, it seems to me that rock and roll, in terms of a format, has totally peaked because people weren't allowing other things to let it evolve. And so I guess I sort of walked away from all that, and I kind of feel like in the art world, there isn't that kind of thing. People are just like, do whatever you want to do, man. Um, so I feel liberated. How has uh, becoming a father changed your work, if it has? Um, it has inspired me to do uh, more things. Uh, I don't think the world needs another uh, little girl that thinks her daddy's a loser. So I kind of feel like you know, I have another, another person to impress in my life. Um, well, I, uh, I feel the, I feel the same way. I think that that's, uh, you know, having, having a family is really, um, it's a, it's a fascinating sort of, uh, experiment, um, and watching, watching a young mind kind of like expand and open up and discover things that I think that we, as we become adults and, you know, sort of know what we think about music or know what we think about art. And now there's these, you know, impressionable little brains, um, that you want to just expose to everything you possibly can. Yeah, I mean, I I sort of, um, I feel obligated to, you know, give her the space to sort of find out about things. Um, and, you know, she's already she's already heard the greats. You know, she's 17 months old. She's already heard Captain Beefheart. She's already heard, you know, Anthony Braxton's music. She's already heard John Cage. She's already heard Morton Feldman. Like, that's a great start, um, I think. Yeah, I think so. But uh, has she heard this track? I'm going to go ahead and play this uh, this track that you and I recorded in Cleveland in 2005. Mm-hmm. 
So that was a short excerpt from a piece that uh, Craig and I actually recorded in Cleveland, Ohio in 2005 called Where's Brian Straw? Um, so just to sort of wrap up here, Craig, I'm wondering what you think is sort of next. You now have um, Cube Music, which it sounds like is still actively being presented. You obviously have Sunboxes. You did seven Sunboxes uh, gigs last year. Uh, you now have Moon Phases. You have MB89. Do you feel like as you increase the number of pieces that you're you're just going to keep presenting all of them, or do you think that you may sort of let some of them fade? Um. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess I'm basically not to sound too desperate. I'll go anywhere that anybody wants me. Um, I, you know, when I started doing all this stuff, I, I always kind of took it as like the long haul. I saw my life as the body of work. And, you know, the goal for me is just to keep doing this. Um, so I would like to keep adding more pieces to the roster and show them collectively or separately. Um, I'm really kind of open about that kind of stuff. Um, I think that I, I'm starting to feel like I'm running out of time. Um, you know, like I, I really only have 50 years left and I feel like I have more than 50 years worth of ideas already. So who knows what's going to happen between here and there? You know what I mean? Well, on that note, I guess I better let you get back to work. Um, I want I want to thank you. It's been uh, it's been great to talk to you, and I encourage anybody who is listening to this show uh, tell your friends if they're in Charleston uh, to go and check out Craig Calaruso's installations. You definitely definitely won't be sorry. Um, thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears. Big thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer, and Liz Smith, who engineers this show every Wednesday. Uh, please take a moment to like this show on Facebook and iTunes, and you can find many more great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 